I don't know if you're these kind of people, but I wonder if you ever wonder, is it the end? Is the end coming? You just watch the news and you wonder, there's just a lot of stuff going on. Is the end coming? Um, Puerto Rico has a, a dear place in my family's heart. We, uh, uh, my wife's sister was married there, and it was a beautiful destination wedding, but it was made extra, mm, I don't know, memorable in that the day, so we arrived early, but the day before their wedding, um, Amber's brother-in-law's uh, father died. The day before the wedding, her father died, before he even got there. Well, he was too sick to travel. They knew he was sick. And so it was this really weird wedding where we, I married them, and the next day I did a memorial service for their father on, the, on a beach in Puerto Rico. It's this beautiful place that often gets forgotten, I think, by continental USA. You may or may not know, but I don't really feel like we're hearing it much in the news, but there's been a bunch of earthquakes in Puerto Rico uh, since late December. And uh, just some statistics around that. There was actually one just last night, a, a light 4.8 magnitude earthquake, uh, 48 miles northwest of Aguadilla. And uh, again, they started the end of December, and since the end of December, there have been 500 earthquakes, magnitude two or higher. So those, the ones that are two are like not super noticeable. It's really not until magnitude six does significant damage happen. But you have to put yourself in the shoes of those living there. You never know when the big one's gonna hit. And they've been living under this state, really, of, I think, trauma for a long time. Hurricane Maria hit in 2017, September. 3,000 people died, it's estimated. And we kind of forget about it, right? 3,000 is how many people died in 9-11. We remember 9-11 pretty well. We don't think much about Puerto Rico and how two years ago, 3,000 people died as a result of that hurricane. And so they've had, just over the last few years, you know, the destruction from um, Hurricane Maria, destruction from earthquakes recently, they've had prolonged power outages, economic stagnation, there's been corruption, the, whole, the governor was replaced uh, under pressure, and there have been just this steady migration as a result from Puerto Rico to the mainland of the US. And so even the most recent uh, earthquakes have brought hundreds of families to the US over the last month uh, that's estimated that really just six months after Maria, 135,000 Puerto Ricans relocated to the U.S. mainland. And, uh, you know, we support a church, or we try to support a church, not really in large amounts. In some, some ways, it just feels like a token gift. But to a PCA church that's in San Juan, Puerto Rico, they're doing great holistic ministry to the hardest-hit areas in the San Juan area. And again, it's, it's just so easy to forget, right? Puerto Rico's not New York City. It's a natural disaster, so we, we are kind of become accustomed to them. It's not terrorists. It's a bunch of neighborhoods getting flattened, whether by hurricane or by earthquakes. It's not skyscrapers falling from the sky, and yet it's very real, right? And it's very real to the Puerto Ricans living there and who have fled to the U.S. mainland. That's just one example, right? We could over the last just few months, we could think about the wildfires 
and Australia. Current estimates is 72,000 square miles have been affected. Iowa is 56,000 square miles. So just think, one and a half Iowas have been burnt to the ground. 5,900 buildings have been burnt. 2,800 approximately homes. 34 people have been killed. Estimated one billion animals have been killed and some endangered species driven to extinction. We have the coronavirus right now. My parents are in the US from Hong Kong. They've been here for a month. They're kind of freaking out, honestly. They were supposed to go back this week to Hong Kong and they are trying not to. That's, they're, they're trying to make sure their visas can keep them staying longer, just trying to play things by ear, see how things go. We hear talk of climate apocalypse. No matter where you stand on climate change, the discourse, the tenor, is kind of apocalyptic. And I'm, I'm, I'm not smart enough to know. I, I believe it's real climate change. That's just my personal opinion. But I don't know if apocalyptic language is appropriate yet. But that's how we're talking about it in society right now. And in a weird way, again, even in this last week, Kobe Bryant's death, to me, surprisingly, has shook this nation. I'm not a Kobe fan, and so I just like, oh yeah, great basketball player passed away. But it's been amazing to see how him as a cultural icon has impacted so many just reflecting over his death. Some people, I know, get really grumpy about celebrity deaths. Like, oh, you know, his life is not more valuable People die all the time. Like, why does he get all the attention? And I think the reality is just people who are famous who die are known by so many. And it's this awakening, this rude awakening that death is real. And the reality is we try to avoid that reality as human beings. We don't want to face it. I looked it up because I didn't know, but 150,000 people die every day around the world, which, I don't know, maybe I thought it'd be more, but that's still a lot of people dying on a daily basis. Is it the end? Are things worse this year compared to any other year that has happened before? I don't know, but I know we can look at even just this series of events that I mentioned and ask Is God really in control? What is the meaning of all of this? And we're faced with that question. And when John wrote the book of Revelation, Christians would have been asking very similar questions. Is God really in control? What is the meaning of all of this? They were facing, as the early church, Emperor Nero's mass cruel persecution of the church, In AD 64, there were destructive earthquakes in AD 60, and there was the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79, and a devastating famine in 92. Plenty of drama, catastrophe happening to make Christians of the time holding on to these promises of Christ, thinking, is God really in control? How is this story going to end? Revelation is just a difficult book, I think, for modern ears to hear because when we read it a bit, we start thinking it sounds like the crazy street corner preacher saying, repent, the end is near. And we're like, I don't know if I want to listen to that crazy guy on the street corner. 
But Revelation is actually trying to answer that message in this sense. It is about where is God leading this world in history? What is the ultimate hope in life? And can it really be found in God? Does God really have an answer to the end of each of our individual stories and the story of the world that is unfolding before our eyes? Can we trust him to guide us in our lives, in our world's story? The questions that the Christians struggle with in the early church is really not that unlike the very questions that we ask. God, are you really in control? God, what is the meaning of all this? God, how will this story end? My hope in today's passage as we look at chapters 6 and 7 and a little bit of 8 is we will see that God indeed is in control and that not only is in control, that he has sealed us by Christ through faith in Christ and that gives us the reason to persevere in the face of suffering, compromise, and even persecution. Let me just give a quick summary of where we've been so far because it makes sense of talking about chapters 6 and 7. In the first message of this uh, sermon series, we looked at essentially chapter 1 and then the end of the book of Revelation, talking about Jesus who was and is and is to come, and, and that this book in the end calls us to trust and obey the one who was and is and is to come. Chapters 2 and 3, we looked at these two, uh, seven letters to seven separate churches that call for us to make an honest evaluation of our own lives, of, the, of, of where the church is at in general, and to trust, again, that God has promised to identify with us forever. And therefore, let us be faithful in our witness to him in this world. Last week, we, looked at the, we were in the throne room of God in chapters 4 and 5. And we saw this juxtaposition of Jesus as the Lion of Judah and the Lamb that was slain. And we saw this worship going out from the throne of God in concentric circles of, of more and more worshiping him and calling us to ask that question, who and what do we worship in this life? And we saw this message of the lamb that was slain is the only one who is worthy to open the scroll that was sealed with seven seals. No one else could do it. And we come now to chapter six and seven and a little bit of eight, first five verses of eight, where we see these seven seals opened. And the seven seals, the scroll and the seven seals represent the final stages of what God is doing in history, the final stages of, of his redemptive act. And so we, there's a, really a lot to say in here, and I, I'm not even barely going to touch on anything, but I hope we get to kind of the big picture of what that message is. What are the seven seals then? The seven seals really encompass these three main things, judgment of sin, the suffering of the saints, and then in the end, the salvation of the saints, those who have trusted in God. The opening of the seals is in Revelation, the actual revelation and execution of the contents in the scroll, the actual execution of these final stages of God's plan. And so we see in the first four seals, uh, really four things that we see happen, and it's, I think, meant to be understood really in more a logical order rather than a chronological order. We see described on the first seal this, this idea of conquest happening in this world, violence happening between nations. We see that leading, uh, going along with civil unrest, 
described in seal number two. Seal number three describes famine that goes on in this world. And fourth, um, the fourth seal describes death in this world as well. And so the third seal is probably the least obvious one. I think it's just interesting to point out. It talks about how a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. So most of us are like, what? <laughs> What's the significance of any of that? Uh, but essentially, it's just describing inflated grain prices. Prices of grain that are eight to ten times what they normally cost. So I don't know who goes shopping in your household, but a gallon of milk is approximately $2.50. So imagine you went to the store and milk, a gallon of milk costs $25. Okay, you'd be like, all right, milk, whatever. I don't like milk. I won't drink it. <laughs> so grain was obviously a key staple is what they're saying. So for us, it's actually a pretty similar price. What if a gallon of gas costs $25? Will you start freaking out? You will. We can't not travel. That's just the reality of our modern society. If you can't get in your car, if you have to pay $25 to take the bus, we're all gonna just go broke, right? Because we can't afford it. So there's this sense of unrest that comes from just crazy inflation. These four, first four horsemen, again, they sound kind of crazy when we read it, but it's really just again, meant to be these evocative figures describing how God in the last days allows for these things to happen and that it brings, it's brought on as Christ has resurrected from, has died on the cross and resurrected from the death, that it begins really these what we call the last days. Now, we don't know how long the last days involves and scripture tells us to not try to guess is the end here. A lot of times we spend too much time, if we're into it, when is, when is, the, end, when is the end days? When is the last day? When is, when is final judgment? And we just, we, we won't know. Jesus says, we'll come like a thief in the night. But what we know is that there is a judgment that God is bringing upon this world. And in these first four, they're not, it's not a final judgment. It is just sense in which God is ushering in the last days and the work that he is accomplishing in his redemptive act. And we are meant to take from that, not fear as Christians, we're meant to take from it, oh, these things, I listed basically similar examples in the beginning, these things happen in our life. These things happen in our world. And God is in control of those things too. I know it makes us wrestle with the question of why, why would God allow this? How can a good God be willing to allow suffering to happen? And that's maybe another sermon. But the point in this passage to say those things are not out of God's control. God is at work somehow even behind these things. And to ask people again and again, judgment, not in the sense of final judgment, judgment in the sense of turn away from the things of the world that don't bring life, that in fact bring death. Turn to God, who is the true life giver. In the fifth seal, we see the reason for judgment explained, that there needs to be justice for the believers who were martyred for their witness to God. 
The sixth seal goes on using imagery that we find in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Joel, in Habakkuk, shaking of earth and mountains, darkening of the moon, stars and sun, and pouring out of blood. And again, in these Old Testament, in the Old Testament, these metaphors are just metaphors of God's judgment. Again, we read it and we think, does this literally mean these things are happening? And you know, there you could read tons of scholarly debate about whether it's figurative or literal. And I'm just going to go with the scholars that say it's figurative language describing the judgment that is coming. Now, that's not a fun thing to hear either, but that's something we have to wrestle with. But in the Old Testament, it was referencing the judgment brought to evil empires that brought great destruction and oppression to the world and that God would hold them accountable for their actions. And so just as in the Old Testament, those were figurative language to describe how God will bring to justice those evil empires that were bringing oppression and violence to to the world. And so we see here in Revelation as well the same idea, this idea of metaphoric language, figurative language describing how God is going to hold the world accountable. So we have to say a few words about this. The reality is living in a secular society means that we are generally offended by the idea of God's judgment. We just don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear that there is judgment from God. Either secular society would say there, there is no God, so there should be no judgment, or that we can't know enough about this God to insist or impose on others that there is this truth of a God who holds us accountable to our actions. The assumptions may be that one, man is in the center of all discussion, or two, man is autonomous and free to the degree that, they, that he can do whatever he pleases. I think as Christians, coming from the perspective of Scripture, we have to say, and as we looked at the throne room of God, man is not the center of discussion. God is. God is the one who's in control over all things, not man. I know for myself, I don't wish to impose my beliefs on anyone, but I do wish to share what I believe to be true and to know that every individual in this world has to wrestle with what they believe is true about life and existence and meaning. And I think that is why Christians should be able to exist in a pluralistic society. We're not here to impose our beliefs on people. We're here to walk alongside people who believe all kinds of different things and yet are called to witness to what we believe to be true because loving people would tell others what they believe to be true about existence and meaning and what is the end of our story and purpose of our life. Scripture doesn't anywhere teach us that we have the power to make people believe anything. Only the Holy Spirit has the power to do that. The question we ask in life in the end, as we look at it from a biblical perspective, is not, is man good? Which is mostly what secularism and religion in general is trying to answer. Is man good? The question that scripture asks is, is this, is man glorifying God? Is man glorifying God? And honestly, that's not even a question that most people want to answer. We want to hold on to, no, we're doing enough good. We're doing enough good to be okay before God. 
But the question is not, are you good enough? The question is, are you living a life to glorify God? And that is where all, everything else flows from, a desire to glorify God. You can do good things and not glorify God. And you cannot glorify God without being covered by the goodness of Christ himself. God's good is far more good than we can ask or imagine. The reality is, Scripture teaches judgment and salvation are two sides of the same coin. Can we get justice without judgment? Can we get justice without someone paying the price for the wrong that is done? Even if our ultimate goal, and I think you can make this biblical case for humanity, if our ultimate goal is rehabilitation and restoration, the basic principle of Scripture is still sin hurts. Sin has a cost. And therefore, there is a judgment that goes with that. No one is innocent. And we are all in the same boat in that sense. We are all in the same boat of facing a God who holds us accountable for our motives, our thoughts, our actions. We're all in the same boat of needing to be rehabilitated by God, rehabilitated to the holiness of God, to be restored into relationship with God. We're in the same boat of needing the forgiveness and grace of God. Whether we have a checkered past or a pristine record, as a society sees it, we still need the forgiveness and grace of God. Society will deem us as good or bad based on how we've lived our life. It doesn't matter in God's eyes whether we're good or bad. We all need the grace of God. But those of us particularly who are seen as good by society, don't be fooled by that label. Before a holy God, our goodness cannot stand up before him. And that brings me to this, really, chapter 7, which is this weird interlude, if you will notice. All of chapter 6 is the seals 1 through 6 being opened. Chapter 7 happens... And then chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, is the seventh seal that is opened. And so we, we, we heard chapter 7 read earlier by Brandon. And really, the point of chapter 7 is this, is that the Lord is the one who will protect those as they go through the brokenness of this life and all of the chaos that we see around us. The Lord is the one who seals us protects us, and helps us to persevere to the end. I titled today's sermon 144,000 because it is interesting, the importance of numbers in Revelation. And the 144,000, again, the thing about Revelation is people argue so many different things about it. So I believe the 144,000 represents all the people of God through all the ages who have existed, who will exist one day, and they represent all of those true believers saved by the blood of Christ, covered by the blood of Christ, who will persevere to the end. And so Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, explain how 
believers are sealed. We could do a whole sermon about what does it mean to be sealed. In Reformed theology, we talk about baptism being a thing that is a sign and a seal. And we see here in Revelation how God's saying, I I need to seal the 144,000. I need to seal all the believers to protect them spiritually so that they may persevere to the end. But then what we see described first again in verses 1 through 8 is the sealing of all believers as the first uh, four seals and tribulations were described in chapter 6. And then verses 9 through 17 in chapter 7 describe the heavenly reward for those who persevere to the end. And therefore, in the end, it answers this question in chapter 6, verse 17, which asks, who is to stand before God? Who is to stand before God? And the ones who can stand before God are, is answered in verse 9 in chapter 7. The great multitude from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, standing before God, washed by the blood of the Lamb. Those are the ones who can stand before God. Those are the ones who are sealed by Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit, resting upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the death so that we are covered and protected, so that we might persevere no matter what chaos we go through in this life. If we think of the early church and what they went through, it is not a guarantee of physical protection, which sometimes in modern-day church, that is what we think. The Lord must be promising physical protection to me. Well, no, mostly New Testament says, if you walk with the Lord, what you should expect is suffering and persecution. The protection that is talked about is not necessarily physical protection, but spiritual protection to walk with the Lord through the ups and downs and the chaos of life to go to the end. Theologian Beale says this, uppermost in John's mind is certainly not physical security, but protection of the believer's faith and salvation from the various sufferings and persecutions that are inflicted on them, whether by Satan or by his demonic and earthly agents. When we face suffering in life, whether it's personal, whether it's just being so deeply concerned with what is going on in the world, whether it's seeing people that we care and love suffering, we ask that question over and over again. Is God in control? God, what is the meaning of all of this? What we go through in America, at least, cannot be compared to the suffering and persecution of what the early church went through. And certainly, as I have lived my life personally, I would say, relatively speaking, I've experienced very little suffering, zero persecution as a Christian. But I would say the last 12 years of my wife and I's life have been hard. She has struggled with chronic illness the last 12 years. And the last eight months have been particularly hard as she's been homebound and just having difficulty walking. And I will tell you, the last eight months and certainly over the 12 years too, there have been times in those valleys where we have 
wrestled with God, shouted at God, yelled at God. God, are, are you there? Are you listening? Are you in control? Do any of our prayers matter? Where are you? What are you doing? And I hate to admit it, but, you know, times when you pray, God, I'm, I'm here to serve you. Can't you make it a little bit easier? Which I know is the wrong thing to say, but it's what I thought. And we have had to, again and again, and because we are both kind of counsely by temperament and trade, we want to allow ourselves to grieve, to lament, as Scripture tells us to, to recognize the brokenness of this life, to not, as I've talked about before, not just to spiritually bypass and be like, God is sovereign. It's all good. It doesn't always feel all good. Sometimes it just feels horrible. And we've had to go back to God again and again. God, this is what we're going through. This is what we're feeling. These are the doubts we have. And to trust that he is the author of our story, that he wants to use us in this world, in our suffering, and in our joys, and to trust that we are his beloved, and that he will spiritually protect us to the end, even if physically we break down. Maybe you're asking that question. Is God really in control? Maybe you're asking, what is the meaning of all of this? We are sealed by Christ through faith in Christ so that we might persevere through suffering, compromise, and persecution. The promises that you heard read earlier about what God will do, I will read to you again because these are the promise in which we stand. Therefore, They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is our hope, brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not a shallow hope of, look on the bright side, find the Christian silver lining. It is a hope that takes very seriously the reality of this broken world, but takes even more seriously the reality of God unveiling his truth of what he is doing in this world and trusting it to be true, trusting his word to be true, trusting his promise to be true, trusting his love for us to be true, and that we will not be broken by the things and the suffering of this world, but that God will lift us up and wipe every tear from our eye one day. That is our hope. Let us trust him and persevere through faith in him to the end. Let's pray.